Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. The show is up front. My name is Brian edwards Teaker. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19 and occasionally other infectious diseases. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning. Good morning. I want to start with a, a question from the news uh, that we got a couple mentions of in our inbox. I, I think probably owing to a big New York Times story that ran over the weekend under a mini surge in COVID cases in China, not at the scale of the surge they saw after they lifted their zero COVID policy, uh, but a surge nonetheless. <laughs> think I'll even mention the numbers because uh, everything is bigger when it comes to China. We don't have a sense of scale. But the the questions all kind of came down to, uh, should we worry about that surge washing up ashore back here? Well, sure. Of course, we should be all, we should be concerned. Um, I think stepping back from that, if we look at how the pandemic's doing in the United States right now, it's really doing well. We have the lowest number of hospitalizations reported since the beginning of the pandemic. So that's just fabulous. We also know here in the U.S. there are an awful lot of cases, but no one's reporting them, so we don't know how many. When you, when you, so if you ask somebody in the United States how things are going, they're going really well. But if we look around the world, there are some hot spots. China is certainly one of them. Uh, some other parts of the uh, Western Pacific are, um, are having some problems. Southeast Asia and South Asia still are having these flares of cases. And they're nothing like these dramatic surges we've seen in the past, but they do tell us that COVID is still here, people are still getting sick from this, people are still being hospitalized, and people are still dying in other parts of the world, more so than here. Now, the good news is that at least the information that we have, which is not nearly as robust as it should be, but the information we have about what's going on in China and other parts of the world suggests that there's nothing new that's doing this. That is, there's not a new variant or even a sub-variant of Omicron that's causing these surges um, it, so we're not dealing with the unknown any longer. So I think that that's why I'm not terribly worried about this, but we're always concerned when we see this virus wreaking its ugly head up. So if there's not a new variant and there is not a substantial change to public activities since zero COVID was listed in China, then would it be fair to characterize this as kind of a, a wavelet that the people who got infected six months ago when zero COVID lifted are now seeing some waning immunity and maybe getting sick again? I really like that wavelet. Yeah, I think so. I, it's also important to recognize that in China, there has been a lot of public skepticism of 
the vaccine program that they have there because the vaccines in China are not as effective as um, the mRNA vaccines we're fortunate enough to have. And a lot of people, particularly older people in China, are not vaccinated and still have not been infected because of the zero COVID policy. And some people are still being really careful. So there's still a fertile field of people who are virus naive, meaning that they have no exposure to the virus or the vaccine and are at increased risk. So I think we're going to continue to see in China um, these wavelets um, continue for a while. And, and um It'll be interesting, of course, to see if China can can bring to market their better vaccines or, which dumbfounds me why they don't do this, um, import more vaccines from the West that are more effective. Speaking to Dr. John Sportsberg, he is here to answer your questions about COVID. The phone number 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. One big new paper I wanted to get your take on that that hit my radar last week. I think it came out on Thursday. Uh, This is from the... Uh, Recover initiative that's funded by the National Institutes of Health to investigate long COVID, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They put together a prospective cohort study, people they enrolled in a study when they got confirmed cases of COVID, uh, as well as a smaller number of people who didn't have COVID, to kind of sort out what symptoms six months later on occurred in greater numbers in the group with COVID so that they could hone in on a working definition of long COVID to bring some greater coherence to that area of research. Uh, A lot of the symptoms probably wouldn't surprise our listeners. Uh, Brain fog, dizziness, loss of smell or taste, heart palpitations, cough, chest pain, post-exertional malaise, getting tired after uh, mental or physical activity. Uh, hair loss. I'm curious because I I saw a lot of people in the public health community kind of passing this around and commenting on it, what the revelation is here or what the usefulness is of the work. I think there are, uh, I think it is an important paper. Um, Where it's useful is not so much clinically. So to our listeners, there's really nothing strikingly new here, but to people investigating long COVID and trying to understand it, uh, this is giving us a little stronger foundation on which to explore this entity. So you were mentioning the post-exertional fatigue and just fatigue in general, the brain fog, the dizziness, the gastrointestinal symptoms and heart palpitations. If you just take that group, uh, that comprises most of the symptoms that people are experiencing. And then they divided it up into different categories, so four different categories, um, what they call phenotypes, which is just a fancy term for saying the manifestations. And it looks like you can fit these into four different buckets, uh, depending upon your symptoms. And that may help guide us towards pathogenesis or what's causing long COVID. I, I think that it's very likely that long COVID is not just one thing, but it's probably myriad things related to having had COVID, uh, depending upon how the body reacts to it. So it could be autoimmune, it could be the direct effect of the virus, et cetera. 
And this is giving us these buckets that are a little clearer in terms of what goes in them. So that's going to be very helpful. There's one thing that didn't get as much press um, from this article, but what I think is important, when they looked at those people who had Omicron and they looked at them after six months, about 10%, only 10% of the people who had long COVID in the first six months continued to have it after six months. So this is a pretty solid number now, I think, telling us that 90% of people after having COVID who develop long COVID are pretty much without symptoms after six months. So that's very encouraging. So for somebody who's had COVID recently and it's been 60 days and they're still having symptomatology, they'd fit into the long COVID category, they're still in a high likelihood group that they're going to be fine after six months. So that was encouraging too. It's encouraging unless you catch it again every six months. <laughs> the possibility no, doesn't go away on reinfection. That's right. And that's another thing they found is that if you got COVID the first time, uh, if you didn't get long COVID after the first time, you still could get it after the second time you got COVID. All right. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. We'll start in the Central Valley where Emily is on the line. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for this time. It's so valuable. Um, I have so many friends, uh, including a son who is a nurse, who got COVID in the summer of 2019, uh, probably from a patient who had traveled to Asia um, because we know that he treated a patient. But they are having long-term after effects um, at, at, such as a really difficult time focusing, um, headaches, severe headaches, and um, and they're just not going away. They're like unlike anything they had before they ever had COVID. And I'm wondering how much research is being done on these things and whether or not there is going to be any discussion of a disability related to COVID. You know, we still see, I see on Twitter, a lot of reports from the long COVID um, accounts there of, of people mm. going through a variety of, of really terrifying, much worse things than those. Um, and and it would seem that this would become a, a job disability issue that, you know, a medical care issue. Emily, thank you for that really important question and um, observation. Um, I presume they really got it in the summer of 2020. Um, and we are seeing a lot of research in the, the neurological manifestations of long COVID and specifically the brain manifestations of long COVID. Just in the last couple of weeks, there were, uh, or a few weeks, there were two really important papers out of Germany that looked at um, people who have long COVID with brain manifestations. Um, headache was one of them, but the brain fog was a big piece of it. And there was evidence that a piece of the virus, this piece of the spike protein was found in a lot of, uh, in some of these patients. Unfortunately, these were at autopsies. So I think we're starting to get a pretty good sense as to why people are developing brain manifestations of long COVID, and it probably has to do with either the presence of a piece of the virus, not the vaccine, but the piece of the virus, um, and the immune reaction to that. 
And once we can get some clarity on why this occurs, then I think we're going to be able to develop interventions to stop it from continuing to occur and maybe stop it from even occurring in the first place. In terms of the disability question, um, this is, is clearly um, somebody like your son, a nurse who got long, who got COVID from working. Um, it would, to this non-lawyer, it would seem like it seems to you that this is a disability problem. And we're, you know, I was talking earlier about the fact that most people who get long COVID get are completely well after a number of months, but. Even a 10% number or a 5% number or a 1% number after a year is an enormous number of people, given that maybe 5% or maybe a little bit larger percentage of people who get COVID get long COVID. So it's still a large number of people, and there, there potentially are a lot of people who are going to be disabled from this. Um, you have to really talk to somebody who has expertise in health law to know what the progress is on trying to understand the disability ramifications of long COVID. But it seems to me that um, this is a disability from a known disease. 1-800-958-9008 to put your COVID questions to Dr. John Schwartzberg. I, I saw uh, Eric Topol's write-up of those two studies out of Germany. The The one was autopsies, they found that reservoir of spike proteins in the brains of people who died uh, after getting a positive COVID diagnosis. The other was an imaging study. They took brain scans uh, and because they wanted to control for any effect vaccines might have, they only scanned people who had COVID but had never been vaccinated. And they were able to identify differences in people who had had COVID and recovered from it, but those did not necessarily correspond to any measurable performance deficit on neurological tests. Yeah, that paper was um, uh, disconcerting to say the least. That is people who think they're perfectly fine, but there are at least in this, it was a pretty small study, but at least in the study with the MRI scanning, um, there were changes. Um, what this means, how long those changes would persist, whether they would revert back to, to normal or not, we just don't know. Very disconcerting. Well, okay. I, I mean, it raises a question that, that I kind of have with, with modern technology is that we have the capacity to, like, take pictures of things and measure things we never saw before um, is everything that we suddenly notice when we can scan it a problem if it doesn't correspond to you know the, the subject of the span actually saying I have a problem right you know I'm smiling because I'm, you're spot on with that and I'm imagining back in the in the uh, 19th century when um, the stethoscope was discovered all of a sudden, we heard things that we had never heard before when listening to people's hearts and lungs um, and really didn't know what the clinical significance was and didn't know for, for quite a while. And it's the same thing today with our modern, modern technology, uh, with MRI scans and PET scans and so on. We're seeing things that um, we, we're not sure what the significance of it is. And that's a good argument for only getting these tests if you absolutely need them uh, because we've often find these things and we just don't know what what they mean and it can create a great deal of anxiety and then sometimes 
For example, a CT scan of the chest could show something, and it leads to a biopsy that's perfectly benign, but biopsies are risky. And so there are problems with, um, with technology, and that's where you need good judgment from an experienced physician in terms of when they're indicated and when they're not, these tests. All right. I have a question that came to our inbox from one of our listeners that made me pause because it is kind of a puzzle. Uh, this comes in from Cami. No city mentioned. Cami is 70 years old, went to get a bivalent booster. This would have been her second bivalent booster, so it was the spring round of vaccinations. And Cami apparently is uh, reading the side of the vials because Cami is concerned that she was given a 0.25 milliliter dose and the dose she should have gotten was 0.5 milliliters. Now, I, I, I looked this up. Um, there's only one vaccine that comes in, in those two particular doses. Uh, Moderna, the pediatric dose is 0.25. The adult dose is 0.5 milliliters. So she didn't mention specifics like that. But, but her question was, if she's correct that she was given half of the dose she should have, <laughs> should she go back for more? I actually... Um, got an email from with the same question, and I wonder if it's from the same person. Um, and my answer to her was that um, I, I don't know. Um, and so I could only guess. If, if it was Moderna she got, in which is, as you mentioned, 0.5 milliliters, a half a milliliter, and she only got a quarter of a milliliter, it would seem to me to make sense that she should go back, if she's sure that's the case, and get another quarter of a milliliter to bring it up to the proper dose. Um, Pfizer is a lower volume. It's 0.3 milliliters. And if she got 0.3 milliliters versus if she got 0.25 milliliters of Pfizer and the proper dose is 0.3, that's only five hundredths of a, of a milliliter, and I don't think I would probably... Um, get that kind of dose. I'm not even sure you could get that. So uh, that's the best answer for her. But um, one of the, it, her question brings up a, a larger problem, and that is that there are different doses between Pfizer and Moderna, as I was mentioning. And as you mentioned, there are different doses depending upon your age. And they all have different color caps. And so it, you should be able to make that distinction pretty quickly in terms of who's there, what their age is, and what, what they should be getting. But because there are these different doses, um, you can see where sometimes, rarely, a mistake could be made. And it calls for your vigilance, too. That is, it's always a good idea if you're getting the vaccine to say, what am I getting? Um, what is the proper dose of this? Is it, are you giving me the 0.5 milliliters of Moderna, for example? Yeah. It, it, it is interesting to me that there's no like spelled out protocol I could find for someone who actually accidentally gets half the dose they should. It just seems like, you know, with more than 300 million people eligible for vaccination in this country, uh, you, you can take it as a given that some people are going to get shots from the wrong vial. Yeah, um, I couldn't find any literature either. That's why I had to give her my best guess. Well, sorry, we couldn't be more helpful, Cammy, but it, it is a situation that had never occurred to me before, uh, which is why we invite questions from our listeners. We had one more from the inbox from Anita, also no city mentioned. Uh, 
She said her friend is telling her doctors are now getting more cautious about prescribing Paxlovid because of side effects. It was the first I had heard of it. Googling around, I could find no mention of it. Um, is, is there any new caution about prescribing COVID to people with COVID diagnosis? Excuse me, prescribing Paxlovid to people with COVID diagnoses? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I haven't seen anything new about that. Um, the, big, the big news with Paxlovid is that uh, last week uh, it was the FDA approved it, so it's now an approved drug, which means that um, it's, a, it's uh, you don't have to follow strictly to the letter what um, the emergency use authorization said it could be used for. So, for example, um, in, in somebody at high risk for having a bad out from from COVID, let's say they're 70 years old, so older, or if they're immunocompromised, and let's say they're planning on traveling, particularly out of the country, um, sit down with your doctor and uh, talk to her or him about whether it might be prudent to take a prescription of Paxlovid with you. Um, make sure that you're not taking any other drugs that would interfere. And if you are, what you should do with those drugs while you're taking Paxlovid. But it, if you wind up getting COVID in, in some foreign country where it's going to be difficult for you to get Paxlovid, having it with you might be very nice. But you have to do that in concert with your doctor and be well-educated about what to do. So it will make that kind of scenario much easier. Um, so the drug is now available. Doctors can prescribe it what's called off-label. But I have not heard anything about complications, um, new complications. W one last thing to say about Paxlovid, Brian, is I, I think that it's a, it's a new drug. Um, it's not been out years. Doctors haven't had an enormous experience with it. And um, there are lots of drug interactions that have to be um, addressed uh, with Paxlovid, so you have to be really careful with it. If the kidney function isn't normal, you have to, to know how to monitor that or how to prescribe the Paxlovid. So there are lots of little things that need addressing. It's not just writing a prescription and giving it to the patient. So it's, it's, um, it's going to take a while in terms of getting all, the, all physicians well-educated and sufficiently experienced with using the drug so they feel comfortable with it. But that uh, full approval from the FDA does mean uh, those physicians who are inclined to prescribe it have more flexibility to do so, including in the kind of circumstances you outlined, uh, giving it to people who are planning to travel and might not have access to it where they're traveling, even if they don't have COVID at the time the prescription's issued. That's right. All right. Dr. Schwartzberg, super helpful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Dr. John Swartzberg is clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Generally, he joins us on Mondays after 7.30 news headlines to go over new COVID developments. After holidays, uh, we try to do a makeup session on Tuesdays. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. 
And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.